The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together. The following audio drama is rated G for general audiences. The following audio drama is a production of 63 Audio and the Narada Radio Company, a proud member of the all-new Mutual Audio Network. Taken from the pages of magazines your grandfather used to hide from your grandmother, this is Pulpery Theater, starring the Narada Radio Company. This is a tale of the supernatural involving the U.S. Navy. Yes, on the surface, it is rather a contradiction, but this will be cleared up soon enough. More specifically, this tale concerns a U.S. Naval court-martial. Our story is called Lights and was penned by Philip Fisher. It appeared in the December 1939 issue of Famous Fantastic Mysteries magazine. If you've been with us for our earlier episodes of Pulpery Theater, you'll know that we are bringing you a wide variety of stories for your listening pleasure. So far, we've presented tales from science fiction, crime, and western genres, and tonight we enter the realm of the supernatural. In episodes to come, we hope to bring you such fields as war stories, tales of the average Joe, romance, the jungle, and the untamed frontier. But let's get started on our story for tonight. The play takes place in the early 1920s, when the U.S. Navy had a regular presence in pre-communist China. Our opening scene is in a military courtroom on a naval base along the Yangtze River. Lieutenant Warren Carey is being court-martialed for mutinous insubordination, and his commanding officer, Captain Kennert, is also on trial for the loss of his ship in the Yangtze. Lieutenant Carey, however, claims that he did not commit mutiny. His actions were intended to save his ship from collision with another vessel. But he is alone when he says he saw the lights of that other vessel. The captain says he didn't see any lights, and he is backed up by every single member of the bridge crew. So, were the lights there, or weren't they? And if they were there, why didn't anyone else see them? And if they weren't, does this mean Lieutenant Carey's sanity is in question? The action unfolds through the questions and answers of the court members and the witnesses, but also through the mind of Warren Carey. You, the listening audience, will be hearing his thoughts, his memories, his reactions to the testimony. We now present Lights. Order! Order! Captain Kennard is testifying as to the seamanship of Lieutenant Carey. Uh, please proceed, Mr. Judge Advocate. Thank you, Your Honor. Captain Kennard, you've heard from your ship's officers that Lieutenant Carey's seamanship up to the time of the incident was never in question? Yes, and I agree with their assessments wholeheartedly. Lieutenant Carey was always highly competent on the bridge, both in calm and in storm, and what's more, well, by God... 
There's nobody I would trust more fully to keep safe position when the destroyer division is making 25 knots in close column. Order, please. <clears throat> yes, thank you, Captain. Please confine your testimony to fact and not opinion. Now then, when Lieutenant Carey was officer of the deck, under normal circumstances, would he use the stadimeter? Stadimeter? No, sir. Carey never used it. He always judged distance with the naked eye. Thank you, Captain. That's all. Captain, you are reminded not to discuss your testimony with anyone outside of this court. No, sir. Thank you, sir. If it pleases the court, I call ship's surgeon Dr. Richard Feldhaus to the stand. The captain did me a good turn on the stand. It's nice to know that he bears me no grudge, in spite of what happened. Still, if he had testified against me, I couldn't have blamed him. Looking at the court members, I see my old shipmates, men with whom I've sailed and shopped and parties with all over the China coast. The admiral ordered them to sit on this court. They are to ascertain facts, weigh them impartially, and give judgment in accordance with Navy law. And yet, when one's fate is to be decided by real men, mercy ever tempers judgment. Real men can understand. State your name, rank, and current duty station for the record, please. Richard Feldhaus, Lieutenant Commander, U.S. Navy, temporarily assigned to Shore Hospital, Shefu, prior assignment, USS... I shudder whenever I think of that night on the lower Yangtze, when I, and only I, had seen those lights. Every man on the bridge that night when the thing occurred has sworn to not seeing a single light. They swore it in my trial, and they swore it before at the captain's, and I alone was in the affirmative. I don't know this for a fact, of course. I didn't hear them swear so in court. But that night I heard them declare themselves, and why should they change their testimony before the court? What was it that night? What did I see? Why did I see it when no one else did? Am I different from other men? Am I gifted? Why? Why has it been given to me, and me only, to see what was withheld from the sight of all the other men on the ship, those lights? Or am I prone to temporary hallucinations? That's what the captain hinted earlier, trying to show extenuating circumstances. Oh, Dick Feldhaus is on the stand now. What's he saying? No, no, of course not. For the last year and a half, I have served, fished, hunted, shopped, and seen the sights with, and doctored Carey. He is not insane. Oh, Dick, you are my friend, aren't you? Thank you for those kind words, Doctor. But what are they saying? Insane? Is there now question of my sanity? Surely they couldn't bring such a judgment to bear. And yet... And yet, I had been the only man to see. And then there was that trouble on the bridge with the captain. No. No, I wasn't even temporarily mad. Where did I hear it? Men who are laboring under mental delusions promptly forget the erratic behavior they've displayed. And I haven't forgotten a thing. No. No.
Too clearly do I remember those lights. Too vividly can I still envision that horrid struggle on the destroyer's bridge. Every incident is indelibly impressed on my memory, from the first order given to the helmsman through to the final catastrophe and the terror that followed. No, no, I am absolutely not insane. No, sir. I tested Lieutenant Carey's eyes when he went up for his present rank, just before we sailed from the Philippines. They were perfect then, and I examined them again yesterday. His eyes are perfect now. If it's not my eyes, what could it be? The captain has declared that I am a trustworthy ship driver. The doctor has sworn that I am neither insane nor visually defective. What is it? I know what I saw. But ever since this thing occurred, I've been in this... Fuck. I can't understand it. Dr. Feldhaus, in your experience as a medical man, have you ever heard of such cases? Yes, I have. It's not an uncommon occurrence, and I've heard them discussed in many a ship's wardroom. Last spring, for example, there was a similar incident when the division was proceeding from Manila to Lingayan Gulf for torpedo practice. The flagboat was leading the column, and I was on it. It was during the last watch. I was on the bridge, and the captain and navigator were there with the OOD. We had just rounded Cape Bolinao and expected to pick up the light across the gulf. <laughs> There's always a little rivalry to sight the light first, so we were all peering dead ahead. The division commander ordered one-third speed until we got a bearing on that light. Then he was going to turn column right and go down the gulf and anchor off Dagupan. For half an hour, every man on the bridge gazed straight ahead and strained to see the light we knew must show up. Suddenly, one of the men on the lookout sang out that he saw it. He pointed almost due west, about a point on the port bow. We all strove to make it out. The lookout insisted it was there. Then, one after another, we all saw it. It was an occulting light, and we could even uh, dis- what light? Excuse me. What was that, Yeoman Benson? Begging your pardon, sir, but I didn't rightly hear what the doctor said. What kind of light did they all see? Occulting. O-C-C-U-L-T-I-N-G. Doctor, for the benefit of our court stenographer, Yeoman Benson, would you be so kind as to describe an occulting light? I'll give it a try. Um, it's a type of navigational light whose beam is interrupted at regular intervals by a brief period of darkness. Yes? I'd say you're on the money, Doctor. Please continue. As I was saying, we all saw this occulting light, and we could even discern its pulsations and check its rate. The destroyer column swung south at standard speed. Ten minutes later, we had to change course several degrees to westward to avoid running aground on the beach. The next day, we received a transmission that said the light had been out of order for two nights. Yet we had, all of us, seen it. We had expected it to be there, and our straining eyes had actually envisioned the thing. It's a common enough occurrence, as I said before. The eye often sees what we want it to see. Doctor, is it really the eye that sees this specter of a light that doesn't exist? No. Oh, no. I would say not. In my estimation, it is not the eye that sees it at all. It's the brain behind the eye. The brain knows that the light ought to be seen and deludes itself into the belief that it actually does see it. No, it's the brain in such a case, rather than the eye. But in the defendant's case, there was no such expectation. How do you account for that? Yes, Dick, how do you account for the fact that I wasn't expecting to see those lights, and yet I saw them anyway? 
That's the very question that's been troubling me ever since that night. I had not been expecting any lights, nor even thinking about them. The lower reaches of the Yangtze have few enough lights, and ships at night on the river are rare. The only reason we were on the river that night was to provide protection for missionaries during the Taoist uprising above Hankou. The little river gunboats are slow as turtles, but our destroyer can get there faster, so we were sent into the river's upper channel at night. Since I was the only one who saw those lights, out of the half-dozen men standing watch on the bridge, does that mean my brain alone is faulty? <sighs> the fog is closing in around me again. I, I can't think. In the defendant's case, I find no precedent. I can simply testify that he is a steady man, entirely sane, and has perfect eyesight. And yet, I do believe that he was dead certain he saw those lights. And as certain, too, that the others did not. What he saw must have been a delusion of the mind, yet of a mind that was normal. Such things also do occur. I'll state with a hundred percent certainty that Lieutenant Kerry is as balanced mentally as any officer here. Thank you, Doctor. I have no further questions. Doctor, you are reminded not to discuss your testimony with anyone outside of this court. The witness is excused. As I watch my friend stand and depart the courtroom, I clench my hands so tightly that the nails bite into my palms. The captain is for me, and Dick Feldhouse has just demonstrated his support of me. And yet, and yet, what can the court do? I committed a crime that, in the olden days, would have had me hanging from a yardarm. And my excuse was what? Simply that I had seen something that no other man had seen. The mere fact that the catastrophe I tried to prevent came as soon as the captain took over from me could have but little weight with a court that must decide my fate on tangible fact. And yet, good God in heaven, it must be excuse enough. I had seen the lights. The captain had interfered. Disaster had followed. Surely the court will understand that when I stand in the witness box to testify on my own behalf. The court will adjourn for a short recess, and the judge advocate will call Lieutenant Carey to the stand when we reconvene. You're listening to Pulpourri Theater and the Narada Radio Company's presentation of Philip Fisher's Lights. We'll be back with Act Two of our play in just a moment. Here you go, sir. Nice, fresh, piping hot Stoopnagel's coffee. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Hot coffee all over you. What can I... Hey... Wait a minute, mister. Why are you grinning? Didn't that hurt? Why, of course it did, young lady. I'm in excruciating agony, as a matter of fact. Hey, are we in that Gel in Souls commercial? Are you wearing a hidden microphone? No, don't be silly. Well, I confess that I am wearing a hidden microphone, but that's just a hobby. So, what's with the grin? 
Well, if I had to have piping hot coffee spilled in my lap, I'm glad it was Stoopnagel's coffee. That's Stoopnagel's coffee, grown in the mountains of Brooklyn by Juan Valdez's little brother Julio. We don't recommend you pour it in your lap, but why risk it with some other brand? Mister, I think you're nuts. No, the microphone protected me. Let's return to the courtroom, where Lieutenant Warren Carey is about to take the stand at his own court-martial for mutinous insubordination. This is Pulp Paris Theater, starring the Narada Radio Company, and the play is called Lights, by Philip Fisher. Swear that my testimony shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. State your name, rank, and current duty station for the record. Carey, Warren, Lieutenant, U.S. Navy... Temporarily assigned to Administration Office, Shore Hospital, Shefu. Be seated, Lieutenant. You are taking the stand on your own volition to testify on your own behalf as to the events laid out in earlier testimony? Yes, sir. Very well. Please take us through the events as you remember them. Um... Is anything wrong, Lieutenant? Uh, no, sir. It's just that I remember everything so vividly. It's all I've thought about for the past week. And now that I'm on the stand, it's hard to get started with the telling of it. Just do your best. Thank you, sir. I was officer of the deck. The captain had gotten himself a hasty meal from his Filipino steward in the emergency cabin on the bridge. The navigator had plotted changes in course, and had gone below to finish his coffee with the other officers. There was a, a half hour to go on the second dog watch, and in the back of my mind, I was going over some points I wanted to impress upon the chief bosun's mate when he took the eight o'clock reports. One of these points was a tear in the awning canvas, where it was stretched tight over the ice locker, just abaft of the bridge. The awning was beginning to flap in the breeze, and this night I needed silence on the bridge. This way I could sense better any variation in the hum of the force-draft blowers. You see... In the currents of the lower Yangtze, all things must be anticipated. The officer of the deck must know as soon as the fire room watch that something has gone wrong. He must have the forecastle gang ready to let go the anchor, even before word of the lost steam has come through the voice tube. <clears throat> May I have a glass of water, please? Thank you. Well, I was standing on the starboard side of the bridge, near the rack of tubes, leaning on the sill of the open port. I knew the captain was on the opposite side from me, by the engine order telegraph to port, because I could see occasional sparks from his pipe. I was almost tempted to call the chief bosun's mate at once to, to have that awning repaired, and had all but turned to give the order when my eye caught something, a light of some kind still dim in the distance, I stared out at the object for a minute or more, then took up my binoculars and found that the light I'd seen was not a single light, but three instead. Starboard lookout! 
Yes, sir. Do you see any lights about three points on the bow? Pretty far off? No, sir. Try the glasses. Uh, uh-uh. Uh, don't see a thing, sir. Certain of it? Absolutely, sir. Thanks, lookout. Return to your post. Oh, let me have the glasses back. Yes, sir. Here you go. After my conversation with the lookout, I glanced at the clock on the bulkhead behind the helmsman. There was nothing to record. It was just a matter of habit with me. The flapping of the canvas over the ice locker had stopped bothering me, had become a part of the normal respiration of the ship. I thought to leave it until the eight o'clock reports to inform the bosun's mate about it. I turned back to my open port, but discovered the captain staring into the blackness and filling his pipe. I paused, tentatively, at his elbow, undecided for a moment whether to remain where I was or assume the captain's former position near the annunciators. Something urged me to remain. Mm, Lieutenant? Captain? Did you see something? Thought I did, sir. Looked to me like a ship's light off to starboard. I don't see anything through my binoculars. The lights are there, sir, all right. Seem nearer now, too. Hmm. I don't make anything out. Here, sir. Sight along my arm. About two points on the bow, sir. Left a bit, Captain. There, that's it. See the now, sir? <sighs> don't see a thing, Gary. Damn pipe's gone out again. I found that peculiar. I wondered if perhaps my last look at the light-flooded chart had left images on the retinas of my eyes. I wiped my eyes with my handkerchief, cleaned the binoculars lenses very carefully, and then raised them again. But the lights are close now, Captain. Why, I can see them without the binoculars. Right there, sir. Hanged if I can see them, Carrie. This river breeze blurs everything. Let's try your glass. Yes, sir. Here you go. Not a thing, not a thing. You'd better have your eyes examined, young fellow. But they're holding steady, Captain. A ship as clear as day, heading from starboard across our course. I can see her masthead and port running light, and cabin lights topside. Helmsman, what's your compass? Right on, sir. 248. Come on, 260. 260, aye, sir. What's that? Get the time of that change, quartermaster. Shifting course a bit to the right, Captain. She's got the right of way, and there's no use taking any chances. Who's got the right of way? That ship, sir. Damn it, Carrie, your eyes must have gone bad. There's no other ship in sight. But Captain Kinnert. Helm, back on your former course. Quartermaster, get that time. Coming back to 248. Aye, Captain. Do you lads see anything ahead? Lights? Captain, helm 15 degrees right, on the jump now. Damn it, sir, get off the bridge. Helm, back to your former course. Snap into it. You're taking orders from me now. Lively. The men were looking at each other in consternation. I felt my own heart sink. For the first time in my career, I had been ordered off the bridge. I was worried about Mr. Carey. The skipper was real mad at him, 
He kept, Mr. Carey, I mean, he kept yelling about the lights, and we didn't see no lights. But he's an officer, so I did what he told me. After I wrote down the time of that last course change given by the captain, I looked up and saw Lieutenant Carey's face in the glow of the chart table. I couldn't tell what he was thinking, but I knew he was trying to make up his mind about something. The captain had ordered him off the bridge, but he looked like he had one more thing to say before he left. But great God, Captain, she's on our very bowels. We'll hit sure, we'll... Damn it, Mr. Carey. Consider yourself under arrest. You're either mutinous or mad. This will be reported when we finish the business upriver and return to Shanghai. Get out! By heaven, sir, I will not leave. Not when the safety of the ship is at stake. Are you all blind? Mr. Carey ran to the annunciators and jerked the signals for both engines to full reverse. Then he shoved me aside and spun the wheel to starboard. The captain grabbed Mr. Carey and called to the lookout to drag him below. I was coming to help the captain, and the lieutenant was struggling with him, trying to keep his grip on the helm. The whole bridge was like a crazy house, everybody yelling and nobody wanting to hurt Mr. Carey, because he, the lieutenant, he's a good officer. But there's only one person in charge at a time, right? Then it seemed to me like everything went quiet. Mr. Carey, he turned and grabbed the captain by the arms and yelled right in his face. He said, The lights! The lights! Too late! Too late! Captain, you damn fool! And then the crash came. You're listening to Pulpery Theater and the Narada Radio Company's presentation of Philip Fisher's story, Lights. We'll be back with the conclusion of our thrilling tale right after this word. Hello ladies, that's a special feature of Pulpery Theater. It's time again for Julia McKinder's Kitchen. And we're here in Julia's beautiful sunlit kitchen to bring you another one of those delicious dishes that everybody loves. Thank you, Tommy. That was a lovely introduction. And you're looking rather smart today in your argyle sweater and bow tie. Are you golfing later after the show? <laughs> No, Julia, this sweater was a gift from my mother, and I promised her I'd wear it for the show, even though we're on the radio. Thank you for that unsolicited compliment, so she'll believe me when I tell her I wore it. Well, I'm happy to help in whatever way I can, Tommy. And now... Isn't the sunlight coming into your beautiful sunlit kitchen casting a lovely glow over everything, Julia? Yes, Tommy, it's very nice. And... Is it too bright in here for you? No, it's not too bright. 
And I can adjust the blinds a bit if... Why don't you dry up now, Tommy, and let me get on with the show? <laughs> What's your recipe for today, Julia? Today, Tommy, I'm going to tell the ladies how to make my very special chilled root beer and raisin salad. First, you need a crock, the three-quart size. Then you pour in two quarts of your favorite root beer, chilled in the icebox overnight. Then add several ice cubes to taste, then a few leaves of the lettuce of your choice. Would romaine lettuce be all right, Julia? Yes, Tommy, romaine is just fine. Or... What if you don't have romaine? Tommy, I get the feeling you're just trying to remind people you're still here. Now please, dear, stuff a sock in it. As I said, any lettuce will be fine. Then you take one raisin and dice it. That will keep you busy. <laughs> then add that to the mixture and swish it. Swish it till it's thoroughly swished. <laughs> Once everything is swished, I pour it into a mold made in the likeness of my dear Aunt Miriam and chill it until it's firm. Now you can tell it's firm when it's firm to the touch. Serve it with roasted mashed potatoes and a nice braised goat smothered in French fried garlic butter. Enjoy! You've been listening to Julie McKinner's Kitchen, and we now return you to our regularly scheduled program. When we left our story, Lieutenant Warren Carey's shipmates had been testifying at his court-martial about the events leading up to the crash of their ship. His insistence that he saw lights that weren't there, that he tried to change course several times to avoid a collision, and the captain's attempt to physically restrain him, and then the mysterious crash. Court has been adjourned for the day, and now, a few hours later, Carey is lying in his bunk, and once again, we are witness to his thoughts. Every time I think about the collision, it feels like a physical blow all over again. The sickening crash. The startled outcries of the nurse. The noise of the general alarm that someone, thank God, had had the presence of mind to switch on from the bridge. The shrill piping of the bosun's mate and his bellowing roar. All hands, abandon ship. All hands, abandon ship. And then the siren screamed. <coughs> I ran to my abandoned ship station as officer in charge of number two life raft. Later, I remember coming to, clutching a bobbing float. My body numb from the swirling waters of the Yangtze. My mind just as numb from shock. Rescue. Then court-martial, the captain for the loss of his ship, me for mutinous insubordination. And yet, I had seen those lights. 
Oh, this damn fog closing in again. by thunder. News for you, Warren. <laughs> Dick, what news? What is it? The Admiral says he's going to quash every court-martial that came out of the wreck. News from the divers downriver just came up, and he's all in a daze. Oh, my boy, my boy, the old man's in an absolute tizzy. This has got him pacing the deck. Really? What did the divers tell him? Dick, are you going to tell me, or are you going to dance around the stateroom? Now hear this. We did not hit an uncharted rock last week, Warren. We tore our bottom out on the hulk of the Q. Lee, whose boilers blew up with only two men left to tell the tale. And what gets the Admiral, Warren, what really gets him, is that you swore you saw those lights on the night of the wreck, but... But? But what? But the Q. Lee went down four months ago! So, the Q. Lee had already sunk when Lieutenant Carey saw her lights that night. What force was it which caused the lights to be seen? And why was Carey the only one chosen to see them? Lieutenant Carey and Captain Kennert were both vindicated. But that doesn't mean the United States Navy came right out and admitted the existence of supernatural forces. Oh no. Nor did they fully accept the fact that Carey had actually seen those lights. Would you have expected anything else? In tonight's cast were Darren Rockhold as the court president Matthew Willoughby as the judge advocate Andreas Alexander II as Captain Kennert Jordan Brewster Campo as Lieutenant Warren Carey Phil Boyd Studge as Dr. Richard Feldhaus Skeeter Ullman as Yeoman Benson, Dana Gonzalves as the lookout, Austin Hanna as the helmsman, Juan Pettis as quartermaster, Larry Hutchison as the bosun. Your announcer was Lisa Ayala. Lights, the fourth broadcast of Pulpery Theater, was written by Philip Fisher and was taken from the December 1939 issue of Famous Fantastic Mysteries and was adapted by Pete Lutz, who also directed and produced this program. Join us again next time for another thrilling episode of Polpourri Theater. The preceding production was sourced from materials in the public domain, except where indicated. The audio play script and the production itself are original works and are the property of their creator, and thus protected by copyright. This production was pre-recorded and mixed at 63 Audio, Corpus Christi, Texas. Remember, Pulp Puri Theater is your source for the best in audio drama. This has been a 63 Audio Production.
63 audio. Hey, that's my Barble doll, Tiffy. What are you doing to it? It's not your Barble doll, Sally. Why would I want to play with your regular old sissy Barble? I've got my very own special Barble. Oh, wow. She sure does look special. Why is she wearing torn up khaki pants, tall boots, and a ripped flannel shirt? Because my Barble is the all new post apocalyptic Barble. <gasps> is she battling the zombie invasion? She sure is. Just look at that lifelike bandolier and the scale replica of a real M1 rifle. Wow. Yeah, and over here's the official post-apocalyptic Barble playset. Just look at these awesome zombie action figures. Touch that one's face. Ew, it feels so real. Ah, his eye popped out. I know, don't you just love it? It's awesome. I'm gonna run home and ask my mommy if I can have the post-apocalyptic Barble too.